Canyoneering is a dangerous sport which could land you ass over tea kettle. The hosts of this podcast are too lazy to Google, and therefore, all information presented is suspect. Listening to this podcast may actually make you dumber. To ensure safety, listeners should consult a psychic and a Ouija board before entering any canyon. And now, the unqualified hosts of the Canyon Tech Podcast, Wayne and Vin. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Wayne. Vin, say hello. Hello. Today, Vin, I've been thinking about our podcasts and especially today's podcast because we're getting into more technical things that we can only talk about in concepts because it's very difficult to explain to someone on a podcast in detail how to do a three to one or how to do a nine to one for a raise, for example. And so it's just to remind our listeners that there is going to be other resources like YouTube and um, videos that you can find online from a lot of very good sources in order to be able to create those lessons and learn how to do things technically. And then also we're going to have future episodes that talk about things to practice. And this is one where you're talking about rescue ideas and approaches, which is what we're going to talk about today and actually more advanced ones on the next episode where it becomes very, very important to practice these because hopefully you'll never use them. You're definitely not going to use them very often if you're a decent uh, team of canyoneers. Um, So you will quickly forget some of these skills unless you you practice them now and then. So really what we're going to focus on today is to try to make sure people understand it's they don't know what they don't know. And so we're going to give them options for things to think about for different ways to rescue in the canyon in order to be able to help out their team or in some cases help out themselves. Do you think anybody cares, Wayne? I hope they do, Vin. I hope they do. So today, let's start by talking about just overall rescue, the ideas, the approaches. And the number one thing I guess we would advise is prevention is best, right? So I can get people out of any situation for the most part. Some options are better than others. But if we rig a certain way, if we are very specific and deliberate about the equipment that we have, et cetera, it makes everything much better. So prevention is number one. What's the first thing that we want to pay attention to, Vin? Yeah. So in terms of prevention, really one option that solves a lot of issues is rigging releasable, which means that if there's an issue, you can lower the person all the way to the ground. Yes. And we're talking about a Munter mule overhand or say a figure eight descender as a releasable block would be the two primary or a totem, I guess, in that mix too, as the the primary methods. There are a few others. Another, another preventative measure is to keep enough rope up top and actually to be able to do a rescue or lower. So if you have a 200 foot rappel and it's a 200 foot of rope that's down there, you're going to want another 200 feet of rope up or very close to that in order to be able to to do a lower or to send down another rope to do a temporary lift, which we'll talk about today. So those kinds of things as you're moving through the canyon are important. What else is important when you're going through the canyon, Vin? Yeah, kind of keeping track of who is where, right? Like different team members will have a different skill set. And if you've sent all of your qualified rescue people up ahead, you've kind of made things a little bit worse for the team that's behind. Yeah. And all the rescues that we're going to talk about, this is one of the more advanced ones, but trying to rescue from below is one of the toughest ones trying to get up on the, on the same rope that someone's stuck on. So you definitely want to be up top if you can help it when a rescue 
is at hand. And then so kind of in general, as we talk about various equipments and uh, various pieces of equipment, you know, ascenders, progress capture pulleys, prussics, uh, plural, you, having that right equipment is important. And so we've talked about equipment on a couple of different episodes. Some of this more advanced equipment on maybe it was our second ep- second or third episode is very important for what we're going to talk about here today. Because if you don't have that, it becomes very difficult to do some of the things that we're talking about and say setting up a three to one doing progress capture. And even as simple as, you know, we'll talk a few times today about that 30 feet of say seven millimeter cord that's strong enough for a lift, uh, you know, temporary lift, or you can use it as a safety line to look over the edge that can make all the difference in the world for what you're trying to do, right? So you may have to look over an edge or send somebody to the edge to be able to communicate with the person who's stuck to see how far they're down, to see if they're even conscious. And so, you know, without, without some of these pieces of equipment, it makes everything that you're doing a little more difficult and you have less information about what's happening over a cliff's edge. The last thing that I would state, because we do a lot of dry canyons or even if they have water, um, the water's not flowing then, but you got to have the knowledge of that there are, you know, swift water canyons, canyons that are flowing um, that are normally dry. There's some other different techniques and things that make it more important because when you got flowing water, somebody's stuck in that, obviously timeliness matters much more. They may not be able to to breathe well. And so you're really going to have to move quickly, which means these preventative measures make all the difference in the world. So let's talk about as we're doing our rescue, what we're really thinking as we go through the canyons with our team, with the the overall, the canyon itself and the environment it is, uh, that we're in is risk management, uh, risk mitigation factors, right? So the first thing that we want to do is assess the level of risk. So Vin, when we're talking about our team and that level of risk, what are we thinking about? When I am looking at the risk that we're about to take on by, by doing the canyon, a couple of aspects. The, the first is the makeup of the team, like how large the team is and what's the makeup. Specifically, who do I have on the team that can effectively do rescues, but then also the physical condition of the other people and, and the experience level. If I have a bunch of newer people, I'm going to set up things in a different way. The second aspect would be the environment, how hot it is, how cold it is, how tired people are getting, type of rock that we're on, the starts that we're doing. And some of that would play into the canyon itself. One of the aspects that you mentioned is how much water, how cold is that water? All of these things will change the choices that I make. I believe that, you know, on the team, I would say if you have any child on that team, so you're always, even if they've been out a lot, I would always treat them a little bit specially and make sure that you're prepared for them to have an issue because children and certain adults are more prone to panic. And so you've got potential issues in advance. So it's a lot tougher to get somebody to self-rescue if they're in panic mode, they hurt themselves. But really it could be, you know, on any given day, we've seen people have some issues temporarily Temporarily. Most of the folks that we go out with, but not always, will know how to self-rescue. So that makes life easier for the things that we're talking about here. But it, it's not always the case. Uh, and then you were also starting to talk about, you know, the the environment and the canyon itself. Tell us a little bit about each individual rappel. What are we looking at, Vin? What are we looking for? Yeah, specifically on each rappel, we're kind of looking at how difficult the start is, right? Because this can cause some issues when when people are doing that transition. Some ones are easier to slip or flip upside down. I'm also going to be taking a look at what rescue options are removed by the type of anchor that's there. So like, let's say we're going off of a natural anchor, like an arch or a cairn. I'm going to have less options to 
put mechanical advantage applied to that anchor because I'm worried about how much force and causing it to catastrophically fail. One of the ones that we mentioned again is that is that water, but that it's a couple of issues, right? So you've got temperature, right? You, people are getting hypothermic, or but also it gets a lot slipperier. So I'm a little bit more concerned about people slipping and hitting themselves. And then also the, along that issue of temperature, as people get colder, like they start losing dexterity. And so as the canyon progresses, we're taking a, a harder look at how people are acting as they're going down and whether or not they're being able to control themselves during the descent. Yeah, both the extreme cold weather or if you're just in cold water a lot, say you're in, you're in heaps for hours, in and out of very cold water, that can lead to also poor decision making. So that that hurts as well as you're going through and people tend to go downhill during the day when that happens to them or the opposite in the in the heat of summer you could have a long hot approach right even if you start early and then a hot day you're in and out of the canyon but it could still be a bit toasty so that that heat exhaustion the fatigue sometimes cramps um, or if you get into the heat stroke range you can have a altered mental state by the person just as hypothermia will cause and uh, again you're back to having poor decision making so all those types of the things you have to watch for in your team and think about because even if they're a good canyoneer at the beginning they may be doing some really dumb things toward the end when the when the heat or the cold gets to them so let's talk about some of the typical issues that we see so I'll, the first one is you know you're going to get a jacket a glove maybe your hair jammed in the device right so they get stuck they can't go down any further and they have to figure out a way to get off of that so that's probably one of the most common ones. What what's some other ones, Vin? The two that I kind of run into a, a fair bit is something's going on with the rope. Either the rope is newer or, you know, we toss the bag and so it's not allowing this the twist to come out. And so the twists are starting to enter into my device itself. And I'm trying to take care of that as I'm going down. One that Another one that happens to me is like I've come down on like a VT Prusik or a three wrap Prusik and it's just it's just not acting right or it jams itself. Yeah, and I've come down uh, sometimes also when you talk about, you know, not throwing the rope bag for various reasons because there's maybe trees or a bad crack or something. And the same as I've done it before where you don't want to throw the pull cord for various reasons. So the pull cord is feeding out of your bag maybe on your left side and you're rappelling nicely down on the right side and then all of a sudden there's a knot in the uh, pull cord so it's not coming down to the bag correctly and it's kind of hanging you up so that can be an issue too just as twists on the main rope will be an issue sometimes they'll even twist together if you have thrown it down and they may be in the same same dry fall. Another another potential one is if the rope is too short, it's just off the ground, they, the person can't go down all the way. Maybe they don't know how to pass a knot, even if they have some webbing that they could tie onto it. So they're they're stuck. They either have to send all the way back up or you're going to have to figure out a way to, to lower them. So that's a, a critical one. Similarly, if there's a core shot in the rope, so maybe somebody's going down and then they see that the rope looks horrible. So they tie off, they put a, they're smart enough because they listened to our previous episodes to put an alpine butterfly in that. But again, if they don't know how to pass that knot, it doesn't do them a lot of good. So now they're either going to have to be lowered or they're going to have to come back up again, right? And send somebody else down who can figure that out. And then we talked a little bit about the awkward starts, Vin. There's different ways that people tend to hurt themselves. Tell us about that. When people are coming off of the edge, the transition can be a little bit interesting. When it's an awkward start, a lot of times you're you're pulling so hard on the anchor that as you're trying to go over the edge that you can actually 
you know, your feet will slip off the wall. You'll go upside down. Or the other one that we see a, a fair bit is as you're going over the edge, you're minding your prosthetic or the device. And the prosthetic or the device will rest on the rock, potentially pinching the hand underneath. Yeah, it happens a lot with the big chalk stones in the canyon. You know, so you have a, you're in a slot canyon. So you're going off of that rock and it's undercut, right? So you don't have any place for your legs. And so it's a lot of times you're swinging into position. You could jam your leg into uh, the wall or into something underneath that rock. Or sometimes people will put their hand out and they may jam their wrist up if they swing quite a bit. And then also I've seen them of not only getting your, your uh, prussic stuck on that rock, but sometimes people, as they're pushing, they'll put their hand on the rock for support and balance. And then it's right underneath that rope. So I've seen even some intermediate to good canyoneers not paying attention because they're so focused on right hand on the rope. And how do you get over this rock? And how do you get into position that they have their left hand right under the rope? And then they pinch it as they, as they weight that rope. So all that, you know, is an immediate injury that then you have to deal with if they can't make it down, hopefully not a very serious one, and they can do the rest themselves, but not necessarily. And then we've seen this, I've seen this in person once, and then I have heard stories that were well publicized where, you know, newer canyoneers, I'll call them, when they're going off of that edge, they got their feet on the edge and they're trying, there's a point at which there's so much pressure on the anchor and you're pulling directly back that if they don't at that moment move their feet or maybe they forget or they're a little freaked out, they just go up, they just flip upside down. So one one woman had her leg caught underneath the rope when she flipped upside down and broke her leg and was surprisingly calm when that all happened on video. And then I, I knew another individual that went upside down and a rock poked him right in between the shoulder blades and he actually fractured his back. And so those kinds of things are really scary when you see somebody go upside down. And it's not easy to get back right side up when you're in that position either. So you've got some other challenges there to help them with. When you do have an issue then, let's talk about some of the factors that you consider, right? So now you've heard something or someone is stuck, then what's some of the things that you're going to think about when you're deciding how you're going to execute a rescue of some kind? The number one thing that would make me feel a lot better when I'm starting to think about putting together a rescue is if I can communicate with the person. Everything is a lot easier if you can talk to the person. And the first thing is just, you know, calling to see if they're okay, calling to see what the problem is. That will make it a lot better, especially if you can't see them. And that's the kind of the second thing is if I can't communicate with them, at least if I can see them, now I can tell what my uh, my options are. And if I can't see them, then I'm going to try and get into a position where I can, whether it's putting together a safety line and getting close to the edge or just moving to a different part of the canyon. Yeah, exactly. And some of that is are they even conscious? So if they went upside down quickly and whack their head on something, then you may not be communicating with them just because they're not even awake. So you now got a whole different set of issues if you're if you're if you think they've been they've been knocked out and they're just hanging there. And then another thing I would say is anybody who's had kids, you know this next comment, which is how much are they screaming? So you can always tell the urgency of a situation by how much a kid or an adult screams. And so some of that'll be if their hair is caught it's going to be pretty painful for a little bit and it'll, it'll kind of be like 
jerking their head. And then, but if they have some other issues, you know, they did jam or they got a bone sticking out or something like that, you're going to have quite a bit of pain and you're going to know it relatively quickly. Similarly with the hair caught, it also makes a difference because it's going to be really uncomfortable for them. And, you know, their head is down by their descender. They're not likely to self-rescue when that happens. So if you're trying to put a sling using a Clem Heist to go step up, that's not going to work really well when your head's tucked down. And then also you probably aren't going to do want to do a raise because imagine their hair is stuck in their descender and their head's near there and they're going to, you know, you're going to pull all of that over an edge as they come up. Probably not a good idea. So, so those are the kinds of things that you got to think about when something has actually happened. What other considerations, Vin? The second thing I'll be taking a look at is what I have available in terms of equipment and rope up top. If I have enough rope to get all the way to the bottom, that presents some options. But even if that's not the case, then if I have some pull cord, I might be willing to do some stuff with that. Pulleys, prosics, all of these things, I'll start to assemble my options. But even if I don't have the the gear as it was designed to be used, I might be willing to start taking a look at stuff that I couldn't convert which would be like using slings to make friction, clem heist. Yeah, not only that, on the, you know, if you don't have a rope, but because you've already sent it ahead, just remember if you do have like a three millimeter, a fiddle cord or a pull cord or something that you're not going to use necessarily for a lift, you could just throw that over the edge or the end of that over the edge, have somebody tie the rope and then pull it back up. Another thought is, so I would do an assessment of really how heavy is that person in comparison to how strong I am or maybe how many people do we have up top. So this would come into play if I'm doing any kind of race either temporary or I'm going to raise them all the way back up. If they're a child, I pretty much can, I'm a big enough guy that I probably can, you know, pull them up on a, on a one-to-one. If I'm doing a pickoff rescue, I can just lift them and then short clip them. But if they're, you know, Vin, if it's more my size, you're, you're more my size, I'm going to make sure from the start, I'm not even going to try to one-to-one. I'm going to put you on a three-to-one from the start because I know it's just going to, just going to come into play. I'm going to need that much lift on somebody like you or in somebody like me. Other things you, you mentioned, uh, flowing water. Water. Van, any other comments on that? Yeah, flowing water kind of goes into what I would consider how much time do I have to put together this rescue. A lot of times, like if I get my shirt stuck and I'm calling for a rescue because maybe I don't, I'm too lazy to self-rescue, I really don't mind. I'm comfortable. I'm safe. You can take all the time you want to do something that is convenient for you as, as the rescuer. But if we were to see one of our teammates whether it's underwater or bleeding profusely or unconscious, now we're in a mode of putting together something that is the most quickest and effective way to get down and rescue them as quickly as possible. When it's in a dry canyon, we usually, you know, don't have to be, as you said, in that much of a hurry, except I was surprised to find out about something called compartmentalization syndrome. So if you're in a harness for a period of time, the blood is not flowing through the lower extremities as as much as it should. And it actually causes issues. Ultimately, it would cause you to pass out and then you'd have uh, other issues that would lead to death. And um, that can start as soon as 15 minutes. And then usually most people after about an hour where they, if they're truly, you know, not wiggling in their harness and they're not getting much blood to the low, lower part of their body, most people would be affected within an hour. So your window is a little shorter. You can't just leave people hanging there forever, even in a nice dry canyon on a pleasant day. You still have to, to move relatively quickly, but you know, not as much as with the water. And then other things that we're going to, I'll mention here and, and we can talk about 
Vin, but we're not going to get into on this episode because these are more advanced ways of, of rescue, but you have to take it into consideration. Is So the first one I'd say is how hurt are they? So you were mentioning a little bit of this because if they're, if they have a serious injury, if they've hurt both legs, even if you lower them or raise them, right, you're just banging them into the wall and maybe making things worse because they can't put their legs on the wall with any, you know, it's not very useful or if there was an overhang or, or other kinds of trickiness on that rappel. So you may have to do what's called a pickoff rescue where uh, another rescuer goes down on a separate rope and gets them off of their rope and then, you know, safely brings them down the rest of the way or technically you could go up as well. So that's one. What about other other tricky situations where it's going to take some advanced thinking, Vin? You know, one of the things we talked about in the previous episode is how sometimes when you're being extra convenient, it removes some of your options. So a situation that I would not look forward to is if somebody got stuck while they were going down on double and that's going to change a lot and we would have to definitely use some different techniques okay and then the last i would say is if that last person is getting stuck so now you don't have anyone at the top and you're going to have to do a rescue from below so that's a special situation that we'll talk about in the next episode as well let's take a quick break and then we'll come right back introducing the blue water swiss seat harness Did you forget your expensive harness at home again? Just wrap and crisscross blue water webbing around your legs and waist a few times. Tie as many knots as you want and voila, a custom fit harness for your exact body size and shape. Squeezing through the tight canyons of robber's roost, the blue water Swiss seat harness has no bulky attachment loops to get in the way and it's light. It weighs the same as 20 feet of Blue Water's famous webbing, because that's what it is. Blue Water Swiss Seat Harness, because webbing solves everything. Now available in bulk by the spool. What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those. Oh, Vin, another ringing endorsement from you. I love it. Okay, so let's talk about the fact that you've got somebody who's stuck. There's various options, and I would suggest these are from the simplest to the more complicated. The first option is to see if they can self-rescue, Vin. So how would you manage that? That's going to be my my favorite option, which is you kind of call down and be like, hey, are you you okay? And, you know, most of the time they'll be like, I'm good. I just need a minute. Something happened. I'm going to fix it. Uh, I'm good. But if they say something like, hey, like my device is jammed, even if they can self-rescue, you're still going to start communicating a little bit, right? Because you want to be able to hopefully double check their work, but then also putting things in place, like calling to the belayer, hey, like let's just pay a little extra attention here. They're going to be doing stuff and their their mind might not necessarily be on what's going to happen immediately afterwards. Like they fix the problem, but all of a sudden they forgot that, you know, that's what was holding them up. And now they're starting to move downwards. Uh, so you might also double check to just say, hey, this would be a good time to put on a, a prusik or make sure you tie off before you start solving this issue. Normally, I would just say, are you going to self-rescue? And then if they say, what's that? Then you got to make a plan because you very clearly, they don't know what they're going to do with their their sling and doing the climb heists, right? To, to step in and step up and get themselves off. So you are going to have to have a, a different plan. So option number two is if you've been a good cantineer and you've rigged releasable and you got plenty of nut rope up top and you don't have any you know, knots to worry about, then I would say, assuming you can communicate with them that if they're okay being 
lowered. Sometimes it makes people really, really nervous. I may still then just try to talk them into it <laughs> because that's that's going to be your next best option. Uh, you know, so there's some other considerations if we go into a lower. So let's talk about safety during that lower VIN. A lot of times when we rig releasable, I know that you and I are both a fan of using like a figure eight block. But what we don't normally do is put some kind of prusik backup on it. And so if I was getting ready to lower, now I'm going to take them, I'm going to release the block. I would take the time to either add a prusik to the anchor below the, below the repeat. Or if I was also acting as the edge attendant looking down, then I might add the prusik to myself just in case something happens and I let go. We're adding a lot of additional safety. If you've got the Prusik off off of the anchor, I'm assuming you can either reach it yourself or you have a second person that can mine that Prusik, right? So if something happens where you happen to be doing the lower and you let go, the other person should be able to let go of that Prusik and it's a great backup. Now, when you have all of that in place and you're ready and you've got that backup in place, then, you know, do you just take your tie off off? and then lower them in a controlled fashion. And then you just have to remember once they're at the bottom, you got to pull the rope back up again and then re-rig so you have plenty of rope for others and re-rig releasable again. That's kind of your second option because you've prepared for it in advance. So the third option we would suggest is that you're going to temporarily raise them. So again, we're in this scenario, which is most likely they just jammed their device with maybe their hair, but more likely a piece of clothing. So you didn't rig releasable, so you can't just let them down. Maybe you've got a static block or maybe the person says, no, do not lower me. And they don't know how to self-rescue. But now what we're going to do is we're going to drop another rope, another, maybe the other half of the rope that you've got up top. And then you're going to do a temporary raise. So talk me through that and what that looks like. Temporary raise or I think in some of the community you would call a shift. The first thing I would do is something like a figure eight on a bite on another rope with a carabiner. I lower it to them and I say, hey, clip into this. My simplest option is let's just say it's a super light person. I grab that rope and simply pull up on it. And what that would do effectively is transfer the load to the rope that I'm holding, um, introducing slack onto the rope they were repelling on and giving them that rope that they need to solve their issue. Yeah, exactly. If you can get to the edge, so you have to remember your physics on this. If you are further back from the edge and you're trying to do what we would just call the one-to-one, then you're pulling across all of the friction of the rock. And so it'll take more muscle in order to be able to lift them. But if you're closer to the edge and so you're able to lift more directly up, again, the easiest is with a with a child. So they're light enough, you know, you can do it. So you just need to either use another piece of rope as a tagline so you can get close to the edge and still be safe and you're tethered in. Or if the anchor is close to the edge, just tether into that anchor like you normally would and then just lift them directly up. Another option for that is if you have an anchor that's, you know, high on the wall and it's kind of directly down and you're clipped into that anchor, but they're a little bit heavier, maybe a, a, a lighter adult. You could also just run the rope and redirect it down. So in that way, though, so you've got it tied off to them with a figure eight into their main harness. It comes up, you put it into either a beaner or a pulley that's clipped into the anchor. And now you tie it to yourself or wrap it around your descender and then you just sit down. So now you have the full force of your weight. It's still a one-to-one, but you're doing a redirect. So it makes it makes life much easier instead of just trying to use your arm muscles in order to do that lift. But either way, you know, however you manage this, you're going to have to hold them there. So if you're just clipping them, if you're wrapping around your descender, you're, you clip into a figure eight and you just kind of walk backwards, you're, you have 
have to remember you're holding them up a couple of feet. And so you're going to have to maybe act as a meat anchor for a bit and sit down. There's other ways to do progress capture, which we'll talk about in some of the other systems. But right now you're just acting as a meat anchor. But again, you were holding them up a couple of feet and they're getting off of their device. So you might need to think about how you can capture that progress or have a backup as some, some version of safety, which might be just another person who sits behind you and also acts as a meat anchor. But if you can't, Vin, if you can't do enough of a lift with a, a one-to-one, what's your next best option? So one-to-one, or, and me and all my friends together couldn't pull them up, whatever the situation was, we're going to start to think about introducing mechanical advantage. The first one that I would go to would probably be a three-to-one. But there's a couple of things to consider when we're, we're taking a look at that. During the raise itself, even with a three-to-one, a significant amount of the resistance will be coming from the friction of the edge itself as the rope runs over it. So by taking a look at how you can change the angle of where you're introducing force coming upwards, you can significantly reduce the amount of mechanical advantage that you're going to be wanting to put into the system. The other thing that you want to consider too is that when you're doing a, let's say for example, the three to one lift, you are needing to move three feet of rope for every foot of every foot that you're moving them up. And your goal, if you're doing a shift, is to try and unweight them from the initial rope. But that kind of includes a couple of things. You need to move them up until you weight them, and then you need to move them up until you've removed all of the stretch from the initial rope. So in some cases, depending on how far down they are, that could be significant. It could be three, four feet before they feel the release to be able to solve their problems. Yes, and you're going to have to take that into consideration. If the anchor is very near the edge, you're not going to have a lot of room on your three to one. So maybe you're three feet from the edge and you set that up. So when you pull those three feet out of the system, as you said, Vin, you've only moved them up one foot and that may not be enough with the stretch and even a static rope. And so you're going to have to reset. So there's different ways to rig if you're going to have to reset because you're going to have to capture that progress. So you can reset at the system. Otherwise, if you're just imagining a three to one with a couple of pulleys, you know, you pull them up and then as you start to release, you're going to put them right back down. So you're going to have to be a little more advanced than that if you're going to have to reset that whole system and, and pull them up a couple of times in order to get them off of their main rope. Also, what you can do is when you're ready to lift, you want to obviously give them a heads up that you're doing that, but keep in mind, they can also help. So they don't just have to sit there enjoying the view. They can actually get their feet on the wall. And as you start to go up, they're they're stepping up a little bit with their feet. They can actually, if they can get a handhold anywhere, they can half climb up. So they can become much lighter, which also goes back to the one-on-one. If I know that you're on a wall with a lot of good handholds and we can communicate, I may ask you, do you think you'll be able to help me when I'm lifting you? And if the answer is yes, then maybe you and I can do a one-to-one, even though we're about the same size. Either way, you're going to have to make sure that you have a way to safely hold them in place. So you're lifting them up temporarily, but you still want to capture the progress so you don't drop them. So if you're on a three to one and you just have pulleys or you're using carabiners, so there's no inherent progress capture, the team up top, so if you have a couple of people, you may just be able to hold the rope because there's got not going to be a lot of pressure. P- frankly, one of you could probably hold the rope. So the second person is already a bit of a backup. What are other ways to, to back up the system once you've lifted them up a few feet in? Introducing prussics is a good way to progress capture, but you have to be careful to consider where you're adding releasable prussics and where you're adding mechanical grabs. 
because a lot of times, and this is where the practice comes in, like you'll start putting it together and then you'll realize, oh, wait, I really needed this one to be releasable. And in fact, I, I put it in the wrong place. Yeah. And just for the sake of simplicity, we'll often say VT press it because it's one of the most versatile tools. But in other cases, you can use a loop press it or there's a, a couple of other variants that'll work just fine for what we're doing. So a lot of times I'll have a VT as my primary because it's good as a backup if I'm repelling first, but I can have a loop press it. You know, we've talked before about they could be much cheaper to have. And especially if you need a second press it, that's a, a good tool for your canyoneering toolbox. And so, yes, yeah, so all these, mechanical devices, the Pressics, et cetera, you just have to want to make sure that you're able to release it. And so if you're building these kinds of three to ones, one little trick that we've seen, because I've stupidly put like a Spock or a Nano Traction where it's got a nice cam with some teeth on it. And once it's weighted, it's not meant to be released. But in these kinds of systems, the little trick to remember is if you just pull it up, I mean, you, you lifted them in the first place. So if you just pull it up a little bit more, that cam will naturally open. We're assuming that these are bolts and we've got a really bomber anchor or a tree, but that's not always the case. So Vin, tell me a little bit about other things to consider when we're, when we're trying to do even a temporary lift or a shift. When we start talking about calculating mechanical advantage, there's kind of two aspects to it. One is how much we're magnifying the force that we're lifting the person, but the other aspect to consider is the amount of force that we're applying to the anchor itself. So I think for me, a simple way to think about it is when we do a redirect, right? So you have the force of the person that, that's going down on one side, and all of a sudden you start pulling on the other side. So to be able to lift them up, you are only have a one-to-one -one mechanical advantage, but you are applying twice the amount of weight to the anchor. In a bolted situation, that's not as big a deal, but when you start talking about cairns, natural anchors, these things are going to certainly come into play. Yes. In addition, you have to remember that when you are going off a Karen, oftentimes we do a, a soft start, right? And the reason why we do a soft start is so that you're not putting too much direct pull on that Karen anchor. And when you go over the edge, the rope then rubs against the rock itself. And so that friction actually lessens the forces on the anchor that you're putting on it with your weight. Now, the opposite is true is now when you have to lift that person, you have to overcome the forces of that friction on the rock plus their weight. So they're going to feel much heavier on the way up. And again, so if you're trying to hook them up to the same anchor, you better make sure it is a, uh, and then there's the physics that you talked about in multiplying the force. So all that coming together means you don't want to just hook them up to the same rock here and anchor. You might have to look for another one or build another one or stack a few more rocks on the one you've got and maybe even back it up because that can get to be scary. And also then bodes for doing more releasable when you're doing rock because it's much easier than to lower them down than to try to, to try to do a lift or a, a full raise off of a Karen. From our experience and our research, Vin, there's a few pro tips that we would add to this, to the mix of this conversation. Give me one of those. First tip, I think that you and I kind of realized was how much better life is with pulleys. Uh, when you start lifting people and you're running them through carabiners, mathematically it works. But the amount of efficiency that you get from introducing a pulley into the system is significant. Like I think the pulleys that we look at run around something like an 80% efficiency for the force that we're putting into it. Whereas like a rounded carabiner is 50%. And it, and it actually gets worse from there. Like if you're using like the repeat itself 
as the as the pulley because one of the things you're looking at is the diameter of the object that it's going around and those repeats and the carabiners are relatively low diameter and it gets it gets pretty rough. You're adding a lot more work for for not having a pulley. Yeah. So my pro tip would be, you know, if you have enough rope and you can get what we'd call a drop loop down to that person, you've got uh, your second rope anchored. You send down a loop and you're holding up onto the end of it, and then you either put down a carabiner in the middle of that drop loop or a pulley, as we just talked about, would be better. You could use a spock, but you'd want to make sure it's locked open so they don't get hung up on this second rope. So now, from a physics perspective, you've created a two to one. When I pull up on that rope, instead of it being a one to one, now you feel half, uh, essentially half the weight um, that you did before, ignoring the efficiency of your of your beaner or your pulley. So that can help. And then also the person. So now if you're imagining they're stuck on their first rope, they have this loop that comes down, goes through, we'll say a pulley on their main harness and goes back up. The one side's going to go up. They can actually, like a gym rope, climb a little bit on that rope themselves. So that can also help get some of the weight off of the system so it makes it even easier for you up top. And then the last option is with this two-to-one that's already in place, and now if I create a three-to-one up top, the multiplying factor gives me a six-to-one. So for the most part, one person should be able to lift one other person up using a six-to-one. So you've got a lot of really good options and a lot of mechanical advantage if you do that. What's what's one more pro tip for this set of scenarios, Vin? As I started practicing being able to rescue, a lot of times I was focused on what's the process that has to happen to get this done. And I wasn't necessarily as focused on backing up everything. And so I think as we transitioned into doing this in more real life scenarios, we we quickly realized that introducing backups before you make any changes will, will significantly make things easier and safer. And the, the example I can think of is like when you're converting a static to a releasable, a lot of times you'll lift up and then really all you have to do is, you know, take off the clove, the beaner block or whatever block you were using and put in something releasable. But really it's a great idea to put a figure eight on the tail of the rope, clip it in. That way, if something happens, prosthetic releases while you're in transition, everything's still safe. We'll get to the converting from a static to releasable block in a second. And just to finish the story of having someone stuck on their their descender, we lift them up a little bit. So now they fix their problem. They're getting ready to get back on rappel as soon as you let them off of that second line. So the next thing I would say is, did you tie back off? Because, you know, they may, they're going to have to do a few more things before they get off this second line completely. And that'll prevent them from having any issues or start to go down and have some other issues shoes. I would make sure that they're tied off. Then you go ahead and lower them from that second rope back onto their device. Then they would disconnect that that second line and then continue on and repel the rest of the way. Just as an FYI, technically, once they're off of their problem on their first rope, you could lower them all the way down in the second rope, assuming that you have plenty of rope up top. And if you are doing that, then again, a prosthetic up as a backup up top or some other kind of backup mechanism is always great. And then you can just slowly have the other person mind the prosthetic and then you can just slowly lower the person to the ground. So that takes care of our second scenario. So the next option, we need to be able to lower them, 
but we did a static block, right? So we've got a clove hitch on a carabiner that we got to get rid of that static block so we can convert it to a releasable. And so we just need a few feet of slack in order to make that happen or half a meter if you're international. Give me some of the options for how am I going to pull that system in order to be able to get the weight off of that carabiner with the clove hitch. In my mind, it's very similar to doing a lift on the person, right? You're trying to temporarily unweight the rappel line that they're on in this case. And so you're looking to introduce a couple of feet of slack, just enough so you can undo the beaner and replace it with something that is releasable. There's a number of ways that you could do this, right? Like, I guess if you were strong enough, you could reach down and, you know, just manhandle it up. And if you, if you were that strong, then you could just release the, uh, the clove hitch and put in your, your beaner block or you put in your figure eight block. Probably not going to happen. You could use like a double length sling, and you could either introduce a two to one mechanical advantage or a three to one. You could also do it with seven millimeter cord that we carry or the tail end of your rope or a separate rope. All of these are viable options. You're just trying to shift up a couple of feet so that you can make the changes you need. A reminder, if you're going to use the other, I'll call it a half, the other half of the rope that you've got that the person is not on, you just want to put a figure eight on a bite or a clove hitch to isolate it on the anchor. So you kind of conceptually have a separate rope for, for you to be able to use for creating, say, that three to one and that mechanical advantage. So what you want to do, though, is to make sure that we've got a safety knot. So most of the time, if we're doing a clove hitch, we put a figure eight as a, as a safety on the backside of that clove anyway, in case the clove slips or someone were to go off of the other half of the rope and try to go down the wrong side of the rope. But if you don't have one, you better put one on in this case because we're going to be taking out eventually that clove hitch. And so if the pressic that you've used happens to slip at that moment, it would be catastrophic if you didn't have that figure eight on a bite. So we're going to put that into place and then we're going to build the three to one. So we're not going to get into it, into details on how to build it, but basically just put a VT pressic on the line, bring your, bring your rope a couple of different directions up and down through ideally pulleys or some beaners. So we suggest you watch a, v, a YouTube video on that. I've built my three to one, I'm pulling up on the system VIN and it's still not enough force in order to move them up that couple of feet that I need for slack. Now, what do I do? You have a couple of options. They're not great. Like things are get, things are starting to go poorly if you're not having enough mechanical advantage at three to one. But really the next option is five to one, five to one, nine to one, or add more people. Those are really the, the options that you have. But the more mechanical advantage that you add, you are introducing additional risks. Yeah, and I would contend that if you get to a nine to one and you're still not able to move them, something is pinching the rope, something is, it's, you're going to start to exceed the integrity of the rope. So I would suggest watching YouTube videos on converting from a three to one to a five to one, or how do you make a nine to one if the um, three to one's not working. But there's also a little pro tip and we call it the rule of 12, right? So what you do is if you divide 12 by the amount of mechanical advantage of you, that you have, then you'll know how many people can pull on the rope. So if you built a three to one and so you got 12 divided by three, so you could put four people on that rope without exceeding, conceptually exceeding the, uh, the limits of the rope and the equipment that you're using. So if you built say a five to one, then 12 divided by five is two point something. So I'd only put two people on it. And if you built a nine to one, I'd only put one person on that. So you don't want to have a team of five cranking on a nine to one because you are de-sheathing the rope somewhere if that's not moving a, a, a single person or even two 
people, frankly. So once you've now moved up a few a few feet, then you want to capture progress, right? So let's say you've used a sling and you did a little three to one with a sling. So now you want to just quickly wrap all the strands and tie off. And again, YouTube videos will tell you different ways to be able to do that. If you've used a cord or a rope, you can actually do a quick mule hitch and then use an overhand knot to secure it. I've done it before in practice. It gets a little bit tricky. It wouldn't necessarily be my favorite way to do it. But the other way is to rig it with progress capture in the system, Vin. How would I do that? Right from the time that you build it, you're using some kind of mechanical rope grab, like a Spock or a nano traction, or, you know, you could also, on one of the pulleys, if you had a, a prusik mining pulley, you could easily introduce a rope grab there or convert one of your regular pulleys into a prusik mining pulley. Okay. So at this point, you've lifted the person a few feet, captured that progress. So now you can go and you've got some choices. So you're going to take that that static block off. And the first choice would be, or I'm not saying in any particular order, you just have choices. So a munter hitch is one. So you can lower, you know, being a munter around a beaner. That's a good option if you're going to have a knot in the rope. So if you don't have enough tail up top and you're going to, let's say, put stacked flat overhands and tie the other rope on it, those overhand knots will go through a munter. So there's a, again, something good to practice and and watch some YouTube videos on how to get those through efficiently. But if I knew I didn't have a contiguous rope and I had a knot in the system because I was putting one there to attach a second rope, I definitely would use a munter in order to make that happen. What's another option, Vin? My go-to uh, in this situation is to put a descender into the system. So somewhere above the repeat, I would put either uh, figure eight or my scarab, uh, lock that off. When I'm done, then I just lower them as I would like a climber after after they're done reaching their summit. Yeah, so the key is to make sure that that is tied off. And then I would say similarly with the third option is you just put the figure eight descender that maybe you should have used in the first place or a totem to rig it as a releasable block. And then again, tie that off because you're going to have to release the rest of the system and be ready, you know, take the backup off, for example, to be ready to lower. On any of those choices, one of the keys is because you, you know, you lifted them a couple of feet to get some slack out of the system, but you needed enough to put the new device in. But you're going to want to take as much of that slack back out of the system as you can because you're going to have to lower them. And if you have a little bit of a failure in lowering them gently, you don't want them to fall too far and have a jolt. But when you're ready, you know, make sure you got your hand on the rope and then take off the backup knot. Again, if you have others that'll help you do this, that's even better. You can direct them. And then the prusik on that main three to one, now you can slowly release. If you have a person, another person helping you, you can do that. And then you just lower the person to the bottom. So that's it for today. And we will next time talk about even more advanced rescue options than the ones that we proposed. Uh, We will talk to you again next time.